You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Awesome. Well, I don't know about you, but another week has come and gone. You're here, maybe reflecting on the last week, if, if you're like me at all, maybe. Have you ever had a week that's like, it goes really well or it goes really bad? Or maybe weeks like that? Maybe even months like that? that that's kind of, I guess, if I'm going to share with you, that's been my, my life the last number of weeks. Um, I work in the HVAC industry, but I've somehow been solving a water leak in a senior's residence. <laughs> kind of doesn't really make sense. Um, working with dishonest people, unwilling to, to take responsibility for their actions, right? Maybe some of these things parallel for you. Um, sound and noise complaints from a bylaw officer of, for equipment on a roof. You're kind of like, what does this have to do with anything? The demands of a time-consuming project or profession. Does God care about, about these insignificant elements of our life? The things that happen throughout our day that aren't spiritual, they're not faith-based, they're, they're seemingly just tasks, that we need to do or complete. Um, things like, I'm sure this would probably nail it for any one of us, uh, working at your desk, coding, sending emails, eating at lunch or dinner, wiping down the counter, vacuuming the floors, uh, commuting to and from work, driving or flying for work, homeschooling with your kids, playing in the backyard or at the park, dirt biking with friends or going on a walk, paving roads, working in the garage, serving at a restaurant, Assembling a bed for a child, helping people move. I mean, hooking up somebody's internet, right? I was talking to the other guy, tell this guy the other day. Certainly, these things in the big picture, they don't matter to God, right? Obviously not. Wrong. That's exactly what we're going to see today and study in Esther 2, that God is still very much at work, even when the focus is not spiritual. So in light of that question, consider this. How often do you and I fall short? And how we think about all of those things I just listed, or the things that you're thinking of right now. Because we don't see God involved in the seemingly insignificant details of our life. What do we do with that? So let's pray before we dive into scripture today. Father God, we come before you, Lord. Just give you thanks for today. Thank you for your word and the way that it penetrates our hearts, Lord. As I was just sharing, Lord, this text has been more real to me than probably anybody here today. And I'm grateful for it. Lord, I pray that you would use an inadequate person like myself to, to, to proclaim your truths through the book of Esther. Lord, I pray that you be with us now, that you guide and direct us, that, that the words of your scriptures would impact all of our hearts, Father God. Lord, we just pray that you be with us, that, you, that we'd be spirit-led, and that your truth would be proclaimed in Jesus' name. All right. The Unseen God, Esther 2. How do you have a whole book and he's not even talked about? It's perplexing. So the unseen God at work through the ungodly way, verses 1 to 4. Let's read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. 
So as we just discussed, God does care and is at work in the everyday details of our lives. So let's see how that's true within the scriptures. Verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, after these things points us back, much like when you read therefore, you're kind of drawn back. Certainly it's after Esther 1, which Pastor Michael preached on last week, and specifically referring to when Queen Vashti had you know, rejected the king's request for her presence at the party. But in my study, this is actually way broader uh, than just the previous chapter. There's a four-year span between chapter 1 and 2. So this is noteworthy uh, because King Ahasuerus attempted to invade Greece during this time. You see here? And he was unsuccessful. And he came home a defeated man. So here we see, or are better informed or equipped as to why he's angry, right? It references that he's angry, or depending on your, verse, your, your, your version of Scripture, might say that he's, he, there's fury. But it's just that a few sentences ago, it's not, sorry, it's not just that a few sentences ago, he was rejected by the queen. It's that he, he had an attempt to invade somewhere and was unsuccessful. So this is bigger than you or I not following instructions or directions or being corrected or realizing we're wrong. Happens all the time. Uh, this would be humiliating, like absolutely humiliating if you're the king. You, you, you're, you're the king of one of the largest empires in the world at this point in time, the Persian Empire. Uh, so to, to be that and to lose in the opportunity to expand and invade Greece, I mean, yeah, talk about defeating. So the king's feeling defeated. He wants to be consoled, reassured, encouraged. I don't know. Do you ever have that? If something doesn't go my way, Kind of that is a, a space of like comfort. I go home, I see my wife, I can be encouraged, uplifted, like, hey, it's not the end of the world, you know, whatever is going on. I, I, I can imagine that like tenfold for the king. So the problem is there's nobody at home to do that. And why is that? Because of the decree against Vashti. So in his loneliness, see the rest of verse one, he remembered Vashti and, that, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So it's not just that he had remembered her, but three specific things that he remembered. Her and her beauty, Vashti's refusal to obey his, his request, and the decree against her, banishing her from his presence. So if you remember last week at all, this is a decree which is irreversible. If you flip back, or I guess it's in the same, you just, it should be on the same page probably in your book, depending on the size of your Bible. Uh, Esther 119, if it please the king, let the royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and of the Medes, uh, so that it may be repealed, so that it may not be repealed, revoked, irreversed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Here we see God at work in the everyday details. By his sovereignty, a new queen needs to be crowned. So let's look back to the scriptures. In verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let there be cosmetics given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So this is certainly not a God-honoring process in how we determine who one should marry, obviously. However, this is the process by which the plan is set for a new queen to be sought out. So let's be clear on a couple of things here. The three criteria that are like the, the, the candidates for queen noted in the second half of verse 2 that women would be beautiful, youthful, and a virgin. 
With that in mind, the king's appointed officers are to gather women from across, sorry. With that in mind, the king's appointed officers are to gather the women of the aforementioned criteria, young, beautiful, and a virgin, with no mention of their parents' consent or reject. I have a daughter. I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) Come on. Throughout 127 provinces. Think that through. We're not talking like a community. Like it's an empire. Think through this. That means that there would be hundreds, if not thousands, of potential candidates to be queen. So this is like a needle in a haystack type analogy. And to be gathered or selected by one of the king's appointed officers. Like, I don't know, you pass him by on the street. Hey, you're you're one of them. Is this, it is suggested that there was as many as 400 women involved in this Miss Persia or Miss America kind of beauty pageant. Think through this. Now let's make this even more tangible for all of us. Think of how seemingly impossible it would be if you and I, like me and you, if we devised a plan to potentially have your daughter, sister, or friend be shortlisted as one of the potential candidates then if and only if she's shortlisted, that she would be one of hundreds. Lost my spot here. Yes. And if she was one of hundreds, she would have one opportunity to win the favor or, or like please the king. Like these are seemingly getting smaller and smaller as far as these odds go. And it would happen within the next year. And if and only if she were successful in doing so, she'd be named queen. So I think... We kind of collectively, maybe not, certainly I'm saying it. Um, That already seems impossible, right? (laughs) Now, let's look at the parallel and make it that much more accurate. Imagine for a minute, let this sink in. Imagine for a minute that it wasn't to be the Queen of Persia, but to be the President of the United States of America. Like, immediately you're all like, oh, wow, that didn't make any sense. So obviously, I mean, I'm stretching this analogy pretty far here. But the parallel really helps us understand that there would need to be some divine providence for this to happen. Out of all of North America, 50 states, 10 provinces, three territories, uh, what is it, 370 million people, to have your daughter, sister, or friend be shortlisted with a couple hundred other candidates, to have only one day to campaign, and to have, out of all the possible candidates, to have a Canadian citizen selected to be the President of the United States. Like, that's our closest parallel to understand what's happening here. Uh, Esther is a Jew in a foreign land, you know, Uh, In our case, a Canadian citizen in America. Like, I don't know, the parallels, it's the only way that I could actually grasp the the gravity of what's going on there. So that is the closest parallel that you and I could potentially grasp, at least for myself. And to understand what's happening here, it's basically impossible. Like, we can see this needle in a haystack type of analogy. So for you and I to conjure up that plan and to have it be successful. Like, I I don't know, Chucks and I were talking earlier. If if Chucks and I made that plan, how do we execute that? (laughs) Like, how do we make that happen? So 100% that's seemingly impossible. But with God, God often works in the impossible. Let's draw back to the text from my crazy analogy. So what seems impossible is how could any of this be used for good? This beauty pageant. There's nothing godly about the process. If anything, it's evil and barbaric. As I said earlier, a beauty contest is not how we choose our spouse. And more importantly, God's way is about forgiveness and reconciliation, not about bitterness and edicts. Right, that, that's why there's the need for the, queen, the new queen now. So it would appear that the ungodly way is reigning. But the unseen God is still at work. What we'll see more throughout the text and the rest of the book, I'm only preaching on two, but this story obviously continues, is God is at work in these things to bring about his purposes. So it's hard for our brains, certainly my brain, to understand how he does that. 
we just clearly see that he does it. As another point of reference, for those of you that know the story of Joseph, there is an abundance of evil that transpired in his life, and God used it all for good. A quick reference for you to look up later in Genesis is Genesis 50, 20. It reads, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive and are today. So let's stay on the impossible for a moment. Impossible is that out of 7.96 billion people in the world today, that you're sitting in your seat, like here today. Wow. That I'm speaking. That God, the creator of the universe, knows and loves you. That he cares about you. That he sent his son to die for you. Now, if you're in Jesus Christ today, you're sitting in your seat, probably happy, excited, celebrating those truths. Maybe you're weeping. (laughs) Uh, Because you know how just hard that is to comprehend. Or maybe you're here for the first time. If you don't know Jesus, you don't even know how you ended up here this morning. You just somehow stumbled into Bears Paul Christian School and you're listening to me. You're likely perplexed by those comments I just made. Or you're, you're like me in my past in complete disbelief. Honestly, in either circumstance, I can genuinely tell you, I, I totally get what you're thinking and feeling because I've been on both sides of that equation. You see, I know, I know how wicked I am how wicked my past is. I know all the things I've done, just like you know all the things you've done. And I understand the penalty that was destined for me was eternity in hell without Christ. Praise God that he sent his son to die for you and I, to suffer and die a horrific death in your place and mine, to raise three days later, defeating death, to pay the penalty for your sins and mine, to forgive you, to reconcile you and your relationship with God, As it is written in the Bible, this is for those of you that don't know or don't read scripture all that much. In the Bible, in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I think we've all heard the verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order order that the world might be saved through him. So if anything seems impossible, if you're me or like me, that's impossible. That seems impossible. But I assure you that's more real today for you and I than it it is any other day. This is probably a better conversation. I went on a a bit of a a rant there. This is probably a better conversation for after service. So if that landed with you at all, stick around. Let's have a conversation afterwards. I'd love to share more with you, but let's look back to the scriptures to see how this parallel, this impossibility plays out. See how verses 5 through 11 reveal the unseen God at work through the unknown woman. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when, the, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women, and the young women pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and, se- and with seven, young, sorry, seven chosen young women for the king's palace, and advanced her and her women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So one of my first thoughts here is what's, what's with the lineage of Mordecai? Like, we're reading the book of Esther, what, what's going on here? The noted lineage helps us understand the historical context, the how and why any Jews would be in Persia at this time. Based on the text, we're made aware that Kish, Mordecai's great-grandfather, was among the captives carried away from Jerusalem, which is predominantly why Mordecai would still be in Persia. And now because Mordecai is in Persia, you can kind of see this compounding effect, we have the introduction of Esther, along with how and why she is in Persia. An orphan taken by her cousin and raised as his own daughter. Additionally, we see in verse 8 how Esther became part of the pageant. Let us look back to the scriptures. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Thus, the decree of the king was made public, and Esther was taken into the king's palace. Well, there's some speculation about whether Esther willingly submitted to this process herself or when Mordecai gave approval. The fact of the matter is that it was a royal command and edict implies, however, that it was not much, like, there's not much of a choice anyways. If somebody walked by and said, Esther, you're going, I mean, you're going. So after all, Esther was beautiful and she'd surely be selected as a, candidate, a potential candidate. The probability would be high. Also note the specific language here. Esther was, sorry, Esther also was taken Regardless of the specific circumstances, Esther submitting herself willingly, Mordecai approving it, an official just kind of snatching her up, however it goes about, regardless of those circumstances, ultimately, God made Esther and formed her in her mother's womb to have a beautiful figure, as it's written, and to be lovely to look at, hence the, filling the criteria. He had created her to exist for this exact, seemingly impossible purpose and plan. So lastly, we see God at work through the unknown woman as she's uh, granted favor with Haggai. Verse 9, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her, with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. I mean, not only did Esther win favor with Haggai, but as, as we just read, first, he provided her with cosmetics or, or beauty treatments. The new King James reads, and she obtained his favor so he readily gave her preparations to her besides her allowance or her portion, like basically more extra than everybody else. Second, we see, uh, and her portion of food. The NIV reads, and special food. Third, we see seven chosen young women from the king's palace. Maybe you missed that in the text. Haggai provided Esther, a beauty contestant, with seven helpers. The new King James reads, the seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. So you're a pageant in this contest, and this guy that's over it all goes, hey, you seven girls come and basically help take care of this girl. Like out of the, let's just say the number was accurate. Let's say there's 400. To, to just pick one and be like, yeah, you just take care of this. So the, the New American Standard Bible reads, gave her seven choice maidservants from the palace. The NIV reads, he assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace. And finally, talk about favor, as it reads at the end of verse 9, he advanced her and those seven young women to the best place in the harem. Like, I, I don't know, I don't think you need to read between the lines here. There's some serious favor happening. 400 people, one person, let's just do all of these things for this one individual. So, 
it's apparent that God is at work. Among the hundreds of candidates, no one person would be treated like this above all the others. Esther has won an abundance of favor among all of the candidates, even if she were beautiful. Remember, they were all beautiful. Like it wasn't the criteria, select the one beautiful girl and a whole bunch of other people. They're all beautiful. So it's only by the sovereignty of God that Esther was granted continual favor from Haggai to kind of be in this position. So more importantly, we see a significant announcement in verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Why? (laughs) I mean, the officers scoured 127 provinces to find suitable candidates, Esther being one of them, and now she's won favor with Haggai. Like, at this point in time, why does it matter if her, her heritage is known? Or better yet, I guess, the concealing of her identity. Why does that matter? The text does not specifically state the reason, but, with historical, but within the historical context of the book and leveraging Ezra 4, which if you know scripture, kind of these things all kind of parallel or overlap, uh, we see in Ezra 4, 6, it says, and in the region of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So throughout Ezra, specifically verses 4 to 24, if you want to write that down, It is written that King Ahasuerus and other Persian officials were in opposition of the Jews, specifically those rebuilding the temple, because the local commander wrote this letter of accusation to the king, suggesting that the Jews would not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it would damage the revenue of the king. Think through this. So King Ahasuerus halted the the building of the temple, as it's recorded in, in Ezra 421. It just reads, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to seize, and that this city be not rebuilt until the decree is made by me. So, I mean, we, we can kind of go a thousand ways here, but this is likely why Mordecai instructed Esther not to make her people or kindred known. I mean, think about this. He just wrote a, a letter and a decree out to the people to say, Hey, seize anything that they're doing to rebuild the temple. And then, you know, X number of years later, she's in this beauty pageant. So if her, if her lineage is made known, that could be detrimental. Maybe she loses that favor. Maybe she doesn't have these seven maidservants to help her out. So we clearly see more, now, even more so than before, see God's sovereignty in this chapter. Not only is Esther the unknown woman or contestant, she's Jewish amongst a whole bunch of Persians and has won the most favor of all of the contestants. So this helps me understand why Mordecai would command her not to make it known and why he's concerned and continually checking in on the well-being of Esther. See verse 11, it says, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The time frame provided here, every day, that emphasizes Mordecai's continued care and oversight for Esther. I don't know, if somebody, I mean, just trying to make it real for all of us, if somebody took your daughter or sister in this pageant, I don't think you just go, well, let's see what happens. It's like he's out there every day pacing me, like, okay, how's she doing? Where, where's she at? What's going on? Is anything made known? Is she going to be harmed? Like, think about it. This is your daughter. Every day. He stopped going to work. I don't know if he worked at the time, but you know what I mean? So thus far, we see how God is at work through the ungodly way, the unknown woman, and now we see how God is at work through the unexpected winner, verses 12 through 18. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashagas. I mean, 
you can pronounce it better than I can, I'm sure. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would go in to the king again. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen Vashti, sorry, made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So verses 12 through 14 here are informing us of the process of beautifying for each contestant. That each, each contestant was able to bring whatever she wanted from the harem to the king's palace. That each contestant that we had alluded to earlier would only have one opportunity to win the king. So the, the climax of chapter 2 is found here within verses 15 to 17 with Esther's, favor, with Esther's ongoing favor. By God's grace, she has continued favor with Haggai, and he advances, sorry, he advises Esther what to take with her. Now, we're not sure what she took, but as it reads in verse 15b, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Then again in 15c, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This isn't merely just Haggai. This isn't like the seven people that are around her. Everybody that's seen Esther she's winning favor with amongst, you know, the hundreds. And then finally in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So in studying this book thus far, you see how we've essentially walked through the process and storyline of Esther being named queen of Persia against unbelievable odds, and specifically by the sovereignty of God through an abundance of favor in all of these, I guess, circumstances, especially through the circumstances that are not God-honoring and are simply just the everyday details of life in Persia at that time. Again, if we draw back to the beginning, the things that seem insignificant at any point in time, these are the things that God is at work in. God's sovereignty reigns over it all. So how should these passages affect the everyday details of our lives for you and I? Today, this week, here in Calgary, Perhaps just the fact that God is sovereign over all of our lives. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. You look back in your life and you're like, I see God there, 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 there. In the day-to-day, are you like, oh, look, I see God there, I see God there, I see God there. I mean, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Perhaps, regardless of if we're receiving any kind of favor or not, God's in control over everything. Your boss isn't in control. I pause there intentionally because I think I'll speak for myself. A lot of people and or myself at any point in time can set aside the responsibilities I have as a man or a husband or a father because I have to do this thing. They're not in control. God's in control. God is sovereign. So your professor, your friends, just not in control. So no matter what's happening in your life, God is in control. Even in the seemingly crazy, unbearable and unexplainable times, the good and the bad. I, I would, I think, with great certainty, we can say all of us have gone through some things. Like, therein lies the story of life. In the things that we're excited about or the things we're not so excited about, God is there, and not only there, God is in control. 
Remember Romans 8.28, we just went through it a couple, a couple months ago here. Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves, at least that I need to ask myself, is whenever we go through these circumstances, how can I use this experience or trial to grow in Christ-likeness? Instead of the woe is me, where is God? I mean, I, I referenced earlier some of the things that have been going on the last couple of weeks. You're just kind of like, really? Like, I thought we had enough on our plate as it is, God. You just keep these things compounding? Hence why I'm saying that this scripture impacted me tremendously. Because I'm the one in the day-to-day in my life being like, really? Another thing? Another trial? Another thing to overcome? Like, of all things now? You're kind of, I mean, I don't think I voiced, like, God, where are you? But certainly I think there's an element where I'm like, Really? Like, is this a view? Is this supposed to help me in some way? Another trial, something that's more time-consuming? So I was the one perplexed with that question. How is God using these things to grow me in Christ-likeness? Because that is his intent. And then the section, this section of Scripture concludes with the traditional celebration. See verse 18. And the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So it's noted within the records of the Persian Empire that it was customary in royal celebrations to remit taxes. So this is kind of just like, oh, by the way, this happened. But if you were to read this like a storybook, you, you must assume that it ends there. Like as, as I'm studying through, you're like, and there's the end. And you're like, oh, wait a second, that is not the end. The author shares an introduction and conclusion to another short story where we continue to see God at work in the everyday details. So God has been at work through the ungodly way, a unique plan, to say the least, to find a queen, the unknown woman, a Jewish orphan in Persia, the unlikely winner, the least likely to succeed. You ever had that stuff in high school? Like the least likely to succeed, the least likely this? I mean, you're thinking Esther, an orphan in Persia, potentially queen, you're like, that seems unlikely. So least likely to succeed in continually granting favor only by the sovereignty of God and is crowned as queen. And then finally, God is at work in the, I guess, through the unrewarded work, verses 19 to 23. Now when the versions were gathered together for a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Thresh, who are the, who, or sorry, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told, to, told the king in the name of Mordecai, when this affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in, in sorry, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So, we're not sure what's meant here in verse 19a, when the versions were gathered a second time. That could be a gathering of the versions described earlier, or could be another gathering to add to his harem. In 19b, we see God's sovereignty again, but this time with Mordecai. It references that he was sitting at the king's gate, which doesn't appear significant in any other way. Right? Again, these small, insignificant details of our lives. Why are you where you are at any point in time? That was the question I just had, that conversation the other day with the Telus guy. He's like, man, like when, when we're talking about this, why am I in this person's house at this point in time with my story, able to relate with these people? 
unbelievable, the, the fine details if we're aware that God is working. Not that we are working, that God is working. So it references that he was sitting at the gate. So in, it, it's insignificant, as I said, except in ancient Orient, the gates of the city were the place where commercial and judicial matters were transacted. So Mordecai's presence at the gate actually supports the premise that either potentially held a position of esteem, probably in the courts, or that he was associated with the decision makers and men of influence in the kingdom. Regardless, a Jewish man in Persia, remember this, he's there based on his grandfather being, I guess, forced to be there, connected to or associated with the people of influence would, would I guess, imply God's favor. How is this Jewish man in Persia also now in favor in, the, in, the, in another regard? So then again in verse 20, we see Esther concealed lineage repeated. So I, I'd asked the question the first time I seen it, then I seen it again, and I'm like, what? like wh why are we continually repeating this? Esther, although she's queen of Persia, continues to show continued obedience to Mordecai. Although this verse in the NASB states, Esther had not made yet known her kin... Did you you might have missed that. I missed it the first time I read it. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as, uh, as she has done when, when under his care. This version, the NASB, would suggest or state that she is going to make her lineage known. It, it's not specific in the ESV, but in the NASB, it, it's very obvious. So in verses 21 and 23, we see yet again favor towards Mordecai, but more so God's sovereignty. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Then and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Nothing is by coincidence. Him at the gate that day, not by coincidence. We'll see that here. Hypothetically, what if he wasn't there? What if Mordecai's not there that day? If we're not paying attention to these fine details in our life and in Mordecai's in this case, what if he wasn't there? He wouldn't have heard about the plot to assassinate the king. The king's life would not have been saved. It would not have been recorded in the Chronicles that Mordecai was the one responsible for saving the king's life. But what we know from the scriptures is that he was there. He did hear about the assassination plot. He did save the king's life. So think through this. This guy at the gate, here's the thing, reports it back. It saves the king. What's the reward? Just draw back. The largest empire in the world at that time. What is the reward for saving the king? I mean, we could probably think through a thousand things. There's a massive reward. The guy gets a palace or a bunch of money or something. No, nope, nothing. Nothing. We're told that it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. However, much like we probably both assume, acts of loyalty were usually rewarded immediately and generously by Persian kings. But Mordecai's reward was apparently overlooked. So think about this. He just saved the king's life, and a typical custom in Persia at that point in time, during, like in that period of history, would be to have immediate and generous reward. And Mordecai gets nothing. I mean, he gets his name written in a book, but there's no reward. When we read this, it, it, we have to draw back. Like, what would you feel if you were Mordecai? You heard about the thing. You reported it. It saved the king. I don't know. Maybe you're expecting, like, ah, here comes the reward. We know it's custom. This, is, this would be typical. What would you do if you were Mordecai? 
I don't, do you march up to the king like, hey, hand it over? I think we can all think of a time when we've done something big or small and we've been overlooked. Or where there should have been a reward or, or some type of, I don't know, gift or, I don't know, and, and you're just, maybe not even a thank you. Like you do something and it's like thankless. Probably have that. What do you ask yourself in these circumstances? Like, just imagine that. Did you do the right thing? If you did something and and it should be rewarded and it's not, I don't know, I'll speak for myself. Maybe I'm second guessing. Did I do the right thing? Would you do the same thing again, knowing that it would be overlooked or unrewarded? What if you don't get rewarded and you did the wrong thing? Like, what what if that's the consequence? You didn't get rewarded because you did the wrong thing. You shouldn't have done that. I mean, we could think through these things to a great deal. So, did Mordecai do the right thing? Drawing us back in here. Should he have just let the assassination happen? Was that the right thing to do? I mean, he wouldn't have done it himself, but, you know, he could have just let it happen. Um, These verses can appear to be insignificant, but if you're interested to know just how significant they are, and more importantly, how God is very present and specific in the everyday details... You're welcome to read ahead or join us next week as we continue to study the unseen God in Esther 3. I can't really elaborate because I don't want to step on you know, my brother's toes, whoever's preaching next week. But wrapping things up for today, we see that without a single mention of God in Esther 2, we see that God is still at work, even when the focus is not spiritual. In the ungodly way, the unknown woman, the unexpected winner, and in the unrewarded work. So I'll leave you with this. God's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so heavy that he cannot hear. Whether you see him or not, he is at work in your, in your life in this very moment. God specializes in turning the mundane into the meaningful. God not only moves in unusual ways, he also moves on uneventful days. The days that you're just not ultra mindful of what's going on or why. Again, I'm using myself as the example here. He is as just as involved in the mundane events of today as he is in the miraculous. So let us pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your word, Lord. Grateful for the truths that, that draw out of it and how it's applicable uh, to all of our lives, Father God, but specifically my own. Lord, I'm grateful that your word could penetrate my heart and life the the last number of days and weeks. I pray that the same is true, Father God, of everybody that heard this today. Lord, I pray that your spirit is is working in the lives of those that this is just relevant. Lord, we're so amazed at the sovereignty you have and that you are over everything, Father God, that you are in control of those fine details of our lives. The things that are, are seemingly insignificant, Lord, they matter to you. And they should matter to us. So, Lord, we give you thanks for your word today. Thank you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would take these things and have it impact our lives, not just today, but in the, the days and weeks ahead, Father God, and that it would bring honor and glory to yourself. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.